Saturday of Labor Day weekend, the pipeline company came and bulldozed those areas. And that was the thing that was captured with the dogs and the security guards trying to keep the water protectors away. Right. So in other words, they sort of destroyed the evidence of whether or not their pipeline was interfering with sacred sites. Uh, and that was particularly egregious, and I think that aggravated everything. One of the main disagreements through the consultation process was the tribe's demand may be too strong a word, but what the tribe said was, look, Dakota Access may have done a survey to determine whether there were cultural sites within this route, but we, the tribe, we look at the land and the connection to cultural sites very differently. And so we need to be the ones out there doing the cultural survey to determine whether these sites are there. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from near Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. You can learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Since April, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, alongside other Native American tribes, have been protesting the construction of Energy Transfer Partners' Dakota Access Pipeline. The tribe claims that this pipeline, which will stretch from North Dakota to Illinois by way of land that runs along their reservation, will be a threat to their drinking water, sacred land, and the future of their children. They also claim that they were not consulted before approval of the project. Well, these protests have drawn international attention and protesters have weathered frigid conditions and resistance by police, all in the name of fighting for their sacred land. After a plea to halt construction, President Obama on December 4th, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers announced that it would not approve permits for construction of the pipeline under the Missouri River near the sacred burial sites and would explore alternate routes for the pipeline and its crossing. So Energy Transfer Partners and Sunoco Logistics blasted President Obama's decision through the Army Corps of Engineers for abandoning the rule of law in favor of currying favor with a narrow and extreme political constituency. Ultimately, they dismissed the decision. So what happens next? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the uh, protests over the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. We're going to discuss some of the legal issues, history of the land and the people, the protests, the history and the impact of the pipeline and the recent news regarding the Army Corps of Engineers and what the future holds. And to do that, Bob, we've got a great lineup today. Our first guest is Monty Mills. He's an assistant professor and co-director of the Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic at the Alexander Bulett III School of Law at the University of Montana. He teaches a variety of Indian law courses and works with clinical students on a range of legal matters in the Indian Law Clinic. 
prior to joining the faculty at the Blewett School of Law, Monty was the director of the legal department for the Southern Ute Indian Tribe in Colorado. Welcome to the show, Monty. Thank you very much. And also joining us today is attorney Jeffrey Haas. Jeffrey is a founding partner of the People's Law Office in Chicago, a law office that was formed in, the, in 1969 to help defend demonstrators against the Vietnam War, Black Panthers, SDS, uh, and others of the time. Jeffrey has uh, represented a number of notable clients and groups over the years. He's recently been at the Standing Rock camp as part of the legal team there, the Red Owl Collective, which is assembled by the National Lawyers Guild. He's been uh, writing uh, some articles about uh, activities there and uh, is uh, not too far from there right now. So uh, welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Happy to have you on. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we should also note that we've actually reached out to Energy Transfer Dakota Access Pipeline Project uh, to invite them to be on the show, and they did decline our invitation, and we reached out to the Army Corps of Engineers and received no response from them. So what I'd like to do, I, I want to, of course, this has been a big week. A, a lot has happened this week, and I want to get to that. But before we do, I wonder if one of you could kind of walk us through how we got to where we are. What is the history of this protest? What is at issue here? Jeffrey, could you address that for us? Well, I certainly will try to. The partners of the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, want to build a pipeline from the Bakken oil fields to deliver as much as a half a million barrels of oil a day down to Illinois and possibly goes down to the Gulf. And so they've been looking for the, the route to do, and they went through various efforts. And the original route they took would have placed them uh, going across the Missouri River right above Bismarck. But they decided that that was too much of a danger to the Bismarck water supply, so they rerouted themselves right above the Standing Rock uh, Reservation and on treaty land that had historically belonged to the Sioux Tribe and also where many of their sacred sites and burial sites were. And so their pipeline path went right through this area. And so in response, uh, originally the Standing Rock Sioux, but they were joined by the other six nations and ultimately by 200 Native nations joined in building a camp just a few miles, a couple of miles uh, south of where the pipeline would go across the highway and have been protesting it because they say it will endanger their water supply, which they get from the Missouri River and the lake adjoining it. They also say that the construction interferes with and destroys uh, many sacred sites and burial sites uh, of their land. And they also say that they were not consulted, either from the sacred site standpoint, uh, nor was there proper consultation done in terms of the environmental impact. It was a rather superficial environmental study that was done for this pipeline, not the much more in-depth environmental EIS that is normally required when you have a pipeline going through this many lands. So when the pipeline got very close to the Sioux land, uh, they actually filed a lawsuit in D.C. claiming they hadn't gone through the proper MITRE consultation with the tribes, saying that the pipeline violated both the Historical Preservation Act, the NEPA, and the National Environmental Protection Act. Uh, the court in D.C., then ruled that the pipeline had gone through enough consultation 
and therefore should be allowed the permit. And then a few days later, the Corps of Engineers, or actually a few minutes later, the Corps of Engineers said no, uh, they did not have the proper permit to go under, and they had not done the improper impact study to go under the Missouri River. So they've been denied that easement. And they advised the pipeline to stop building 20 miles on each side of the Missouri River. However, the pipeline did not stop building. They kept going closer and closer to the camp and closer and closer to the river. And the camp grew. And over the last few months, there have been several confrontations. 99% of the people at the camp have been really practiced nonviolent civil disobedience. And that has been the tenor. There may have been a couple of rocks thrown or may have been a hay bale set on fire. But by and large, the tone and the attitude, most of the people have been praying. They have been nonviolent. But they have put their bodies in the way of the machinery to build this pipeline, which they see as an encroachment on their sacred lands and a threat to their water supply. Uh, The main call at camp is water is life. And they feel that this pipeline that goes through and under their uh, water source and drinking source and fishing and hunting area uh, is a violation of their treaty rights. And so they've been joined uh, not just by other Native nations, but by thousands of people who are there also because of the importance of water and because they don't want to see this oil delivered and put more carbon in the air when it's burned. What type of studies, uh, you're talking about a basic environmental study that was done, how detailed was it? Did they get into touch at all with the tribes? Well, that's a matter of dispute in the D.C. case. There was some consultation. They say it was adequate. The tribe says it wasn't adequate. And so there's an issue about uh, how much consultation was done and how deep was it. Similarly, in terms of the environment, they didn't do an overall environmental impact statement or study, which would have required to talk about the effect of the entire effect of the 1,100 miles of the pipeline, not just a particular segment of it. So that's one of the arguments, and that's one of the reasons that the Army Corps of Engineers said we have to look at the bigger picture, we have to look at our effect on sacred sites, we have to do more consultations. And they said we are going to do now an environmental impact study. And if they do that procedurally, and I'm sure your other guests can probably talk about that more than I can, that would require a new study and a requirement that the public really have input and response. And it would delay the pipeline considerably. And I don't think either the financiers or the the pipeline itself are going to accept that. And one way or another, they're going to try to get this decision overturned. Monty, let's bring you into this conversation. You're assistant professor of Indian law at the Indian Law Clinic. Is there precedent here? Are are these issues of Indian law or are these uh, broader issues of environmental law? Or how do you view what's at issue here? Uh, They're really both. tell my students who are studying Indian law here all the time, the one thing about Indian law is, among many things that makes it great, it is every other area of law wrapped into history and questions of justice over time. And I think that's really what you're seeing here. I think Jeff did a great job of sort of summarizing the big picture, but in some ways this dispute, you could look at it in an even bigger picture because it does raise questions not only about environmental law and about Indian law, but about the history of the treatment of 
tribes and the history of this particular region of the country. Uh, Jeff mentioned treaty rights that are over 150 years old that are relevant still in the determination of this modern-day pipeline and this dispute. So it incorporates aspects of Indian law, including the federal government's relationship to and obligation to Indian tribes, tribal sovereignty, treaty rights. It incorporates environmental law and really administrative law, because a lot of the questions, particularly in the litigation, turn upon the Army Corps of Engineers permitting process and how and whether the Corps either did or did not take into account environmental impacts that they should have, tribal cultural concerns that they should have, when they should have taken those into account. And in many ways, the tribe's challenge to this project is sort of based in all of these areas, but as much as anything else, it's really a challenge to the way in which the Army Corps has chosen to authorize infrastructure projects of this type, because essentially Dakota Access was able to design a pipeline route in such a way to minimize the potential for federal oversight or delay, review and permitting. And that is really how the Corps has sought to say, look, we've done everything we've needed to do. We don't need to do an environmental impact statement because we only have jurisdiction over 3% of this 1,172 mile long pipeline. Therefore, the environmental impacts we're going to analyze are really only the environmental impacts associated with that narrow piece of this broader picture. But don't they typically appoint a lead agency to supervise the entire thing? Isn't there one agency that's responsible for the entire pipeline? You would think so, particularly a project of this scope. And in fact, in the district court judge's ruling on the preliminary injunction from the D.C. district, that was where he started. He said, you you might think that a project of this scope would have a lead agency who looks at the impacts of this project across the entire range. But that's not the case here. There is no overarching federal law that gives a federal agency responsibility to oversee this type of pipeline projects on a sort of cumulative basis. Now, there's an argument, I think, to be made that but for the Corps' approval of the 3% over which they have jurisdiction, the whole project wouldn't go forward, and therefore the Corps should look at the cumulative impacts, even if they're only approving now what is really about a quarter of a mile, maybe a little bit longer, of this whole stretch. If they don't approve that, that defeats the whole pipeline potentially. So arguably they have to look at the cumulative impacts, but it really is in some ways a matter of agency discretion, how they define what the impacts of their approvals are, what the scope of the effects of that approval are. And in this case, at least thus far up until really the last couple of months, the Corps as a legal matter had said, we're only looking at this very narrow piece of the pipeline, only those areas where we have jurisdiction to review and approve and permit. And in terms of environmental impacts and environmental assessment, we're only going to assess the impacts at those locations and maybe a little bit of a buffer zone, but we're not going to look at the whole pipeline route. How does the law of trespass apply here? I mean, I presume that the Indians own the land, or if not, then someone else, but who owns this land? You're right. And one thing to clarify, the the pipeline does not cross reservation land. So it's not within Indian country. If it were, then the tribe would have very different rights 
In fact, they would have to get the tribe's consent to grant a right-of-way across tribal lands. But much of this pipeline, a significant majority, I think it's like 97%, crosses private land. And so the company has gone out and purchased easements and rights-of-way through the open market with those private landowners to get the permission to install this pipeline. And that, so it's not a matter of crossing Indian lands, which would raise a wholly different set of issues. Many of the same issues would still be present, but the tribe would certainly have a different role and authority. It does run adjacent to their property, right? Exactly. The uh, court decision that we talked about says it runs within a half a mile of the reservation, and the plaintiffs say that it will you know, potentially destroy sites of cultural and historical significance. Exactly. And I think that that's really where I kind of began with the bigger picture, because Indian tribes across the country, because of the federal policies over the centuries of removal and reservations and treaty making, tribes have claims and cultural sites and connections with places far from their current present day locations. And so one of the underlying and central issues here is how do those claims play out? How are those rights that tribes have reserved in these treaties honored, particularly when you're talking about a large national infrastructure project that crosses a number of different states, a number of different types of land, and doesn't cross Indian country, and yet tribes retain, whether it's treaty rights or cultural connections with lands in those areas, how do those rights get recognized? How do those rights get honored? And particularly when a federal agency is responsible for reviewing and approving those projects, what are the federal agencies and the federal, the, more broadly, the federal government's obligations to recognize and engage with the tribe to do that? I just wanted to add one more thing, too, about your question about private land. One of the issues that came up in the context of the preliminary injunction motion was, as you're probably familiar and much of your audience who are lawyers will be familiar with sort of the standards for preliminary injunction and being able to demonstrate that without an injunction, irreparable harm would ensue. Well, one of the things the district court looked at was, well, much of this pipeline is already in the ground because it's already on private land. There was no federal review permit, et cetera, needed for the company to go ahead and put in this pipeline. So to the extent the tribe is saying putting in this pipeline will irreparably harm our interests, the court found it important that, well, that can't be the case on these areas of private land where the company's already put in the pipeline. The tribe's not going to be able to demonstrate that they would be irreparably harmed because whatever harm that's happened, it's already been done because the company had the right, largely because they designed the route to stay primarily on private land, they've already done it. I just would like to to comment on that, particularly that in the D.C. lawsuit, uh, right before the judge was ruling, uh, one of the landowners who'd granted an easement let the archaeologists from the Standing Rock tribe come on the land to do a study. And on Friday, September 2nd, he filed with the court a statement uh, indicating there were sacred sites, burial sites, and sites like reproduction of astronomical bodies on a particular area just west of Highway 1806. The next morning, Saturday of Labor Day weekend, the pipeline company came and bulldozed those areas. And that was the thing that was captured with the dogs and the security guards trying to keep the water protectors away. 
Right. So in other words, they sort of destroyed the evidence uh, of whether or not their pipeline was interfering with sacred sites. And that was particularly egregious. And that sort of, I think that aggravated everything. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that. I, I totally agree with that. And I think it highlights the tribe's concern. You mentioned earlier, Jeff, the concerns about the tribe's role in consultation. One of the main disagreements through the consultation process was the tribe's demand may be too strong a word, but what the tribe said was, look, Dakota Access may have done a survey to determine whether there were cultural sites within this route, but we, the tribe, we look at the land and the connection to cultural sites very differently. And so if we need to be the ones out there doing the cultural survey to determine whether these sites are there. And I think that episode over Labor Day weekend you describe is a perfect example of the tribe's concern. The tribe's own folks went out and looked in the route and saw all these sites that they believed hadn't been identified. Unfortunately, the next morning, the bulldozers were fired up and those sites were gone. So with the decision now from the Army Corps of Engineers to hold off on this What's the mood there? What's happening at the camp now? Does this mean the camp is going to disband? Are people satisfied, or will the protest continue? I think um, momentarily there was a great deal of excitement because I think it it was a recognition of the legitimacy of their claims, uh, that there were sacred sites that they had not been consulted and that either other routes might be considered. Practically speaking, um, I don't think the APL is going to consider other rights. They kept building right up to both sides of the Missouri. You can't exactly, particularly in the middle of winter, reroute your pipeline. They also are a little bit under a time crunch because the banks and the shippers uh, have contracts that won't necessarily get extended if they don't have the easement to go through. So I think a number of things are going to happen in D.C. already the pipeline is asking the court there to overrule this determination, uh, this denial of the easement, saying you'd already decided in court that they had gone through proper consultation. And so they're going to try, certainly one way is to get a court to overrule the Corps of Engineers. And then I think if that doesn't work, I think with the Trump administration coming in, they're hoping to get either an administrative or an executive order that either rescinds this completely or really restricts the EIS procedure so that it's much quicker. My personal feeling is this is not my exactly my area of expertise. If a full EIS is done, it would take much longer, and I don't think the pipeline would be able to sustain itself for the six months to 18 months that it might take to do a full environmental impact study. So there's a mixed feeling at camp. There's jubilation and there's skepticism. And there's also the winter, and its tops are blowing off of tents. People are cold, running out of water, running out of wood. There's going to be people leaving. There were a tremendous number of veterans who came up this weekend uh, who would naturally go back. And there's not clear. The chief has said it. We can go home now. There are other people that are skeptical. So I think you have all those sentiments going on. Well, gentlemen, we need to take a quick break before we move on to our next segment. We'll hear a short message from our sponsor. Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling all the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud-based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best, practice law. Learn more at clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com. 
And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams with Bob Ambrosi, my co-host. And with us today is Monty Mills, an assistant professor and co-director of the Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic at the Alexander Blewett III School of Law at the University of Montana. And attorney Jeffrey Haas, the member of the camp's legal team, the Red Owl Collective, assembled by the National Lawyers Guild. Bob? Yeah, Jeff, I, I wanted to ask what you're actually doing as part of the legal team there. I, I understand you're, a, I think, primarily a criminal defense lawyer and a civil rights lawyer, and I know that uh, you've been doing some of that. There have been some criminal cases brought, as I understand it. Where are those cases, and, and what, what's the legal team that's, that's sort of on the ground there involved in? Well, we're the Red Owl Legal Collective, and now we're the Water Protector Legal Collective. Apparently, the owl was a different symbol. Different tribes had different views of the owl as a positive or negative symbol, so we've been sensitive to that, and now the Water Protectors Legal Collective. There are about 450 criminal cases that have arisen from the nonviolent civil disobedience, and uh, we are doing our best to defend those. There are quite a lot of -of out-of-state lawyers from the Lawyers Guild willing to come in and take the cases. The problem is North Dakota law does not allow other lawyers to come in, even pro hoc vice, without a local lawyer being there for the entire court proceeding. So the difficulty is finding local lawyers who will allow out-of-state lawyers to come in. There have been some local lawyers who have taken, some of them have 8, 10, 12 cases, and they're overloaded. And we've asked the bar to relax the requirements that for pro hoc vice that the local lawyer be there the whole time. So we're both working on common motions. They've overcharged people a great deal. There was a one demonstration um, on October 27th where 200 people were basically trying to stop the pipeline from moving directly across the road. And most, many of them or most of them were praying and so forth. A couple of people set fires to tires or hay bales somewhere like on a road. They weren't threatening anything. They were part of an effort to stop the movement of the pipeline across the road. So they arrest 147 people, and everybody gets charged with conspiracy to endanger by fire and set their bond real high. Well, I think actually a judge subsequently, Sua Sponte, said, well, there's no evidence connecting any of these people with the fire. So they had to drop all those felony charges, and now people are charged with trespass and some with riot, a misdemeanor. So we have a lot of cases. We have people who've locked down to equipment. They're locked down to bulldozers, even though, and they're charged with uh, reckless endangerment, even though they come with instructions, here's how to get me off the equipment, and so forth. It's really mostly been nonviolent disobedience. But there are quite a number of cases. As I said, 450 local lawyers have been somewhat overwhelmed. We think in many of the criminal trespass cases, they gave no warning to leave. There weren't no trespassing signs. A lot of these charges we think are suspect. But, of course, people now have gone all over the country and just getting everybody to court, making sure they have a lawyer. Many people have filed for a lawyer, and some have been appointed lawyers. Some applications have been denied for sort of bureaucratic reasons. It wasn't signed completely. So we're really trying to make sure that everybody has a criminal defense, can challenge the charges against them. We've also filed a suit around what happened on November 20th when this bridge was blocked and a lot of protesters came out and law enforcement used water cannons and rubber bullets and massive amounts of tear gas on people on the bridge. 
which we think was excessive force. The officers weren't threatened, and they used this kind of equipment, and there were a couple of people seriously injured. What do you think the possibility is that there could ever be one agency that's responsible for this thing? I mean, is there any precedent for that? Is there any hope that there's one organization that would be responsible for overseeing this whole thing? It seems like, given the size of it and the volume, that it's being as an interstate commerce situation, that someone ought to be able to grab a hold of it. Potentially. I mean, as you mentioned, it would be something, given the interstate impacts, Congress would have to create or at least recognize regulatory authority in a particular agency. In terms of changes going forward that I think kind of go back to the bigger picture and the potential for other things to happen beyond just this particular pipeline, I think Jeff mentioned earlier the the statement from the Corps of Engineers, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Interior that came out within minutes of the district court in D.C.'s ruling on the preliminary injunction motion. And that statement, in addition to saying the Corps was going to go back and review its compliance with NEPA and some of the environmental permitting statutes, also called for additional consultation with tribes about these types of infrastructure projects, and not only how consultation can work better for these projects, but also what types of statutory changes or regulatory changes could be made in order to enhance federal engagement with tribes and going forward, at least, potentially avoid the issues that arose Dakota Access. And so while that doesn't get to the level of you know, creating or recognizing one federal agency with responsibility for oil pipelines nationwide, it does well, suggest... Doesn't that, doesn't that lie with the Energy Regulatory Commission? Isn't that the right agency? Potentially, potentially, yeah. But there's a gap here, as I understand, specifically as it relates to pipelines carrying oil. There are federal agencies that oversee, for example, natural gas pipelines and other types of infrastructure projects. And it could be other agencies. In this particular case, though, because it is an oil pipeline, the trigger for the federal regulatory review was the areas where this particular pipeline would cross federal facilities or waters of the United States. That's what brought the Army Corps of Engineers in, also where it crossed, say, wildlife refuges. The United States Fish and Wildlife Service had some oversight to the extent it affected those federal facilities. Here's what the federal court decision on this said, quote, a project of this magnitude often necessitates an extensive federal appraisal and permitting process. Not so here. Domestic oil pipelines, unlike natural gas pipelines, require no general approval from the federal government. There you go. In fact, DAPL needs almost no federal permitting of any kind because 99% of its route traverses private land. So that's what the judge said in the September ruling. Right. The reason 99% of this particular pipeline is on private land is, as I think the judge describes later in sort of his, his factual review of this scenario, Dakota Access designed the route and had a software system that would identify the easiest, quote-unquote, and most efficient, quote-unquote, route for the pipeline to be constructed. I just ask, I'm curious, you know, as I think both of you have alluded to the fact that uh, the United States has a long history of, you know, essentially exploiting uh, Native American, taking advantage uh, of them with regard to land claims and mineral claims. What do you think it is that so sort of brought this to a head this time? Why has this case, this situation drawn protests not just from this one tribe, but from Native Americans all over the United States? 
Well, I'll 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 give my opinion, and uh, or at least what I understand. First of all, the land where the pipeline has gone through was land that was granted to the Sioux Tribe in the Tre- Laramie Treaty of 1851, and it was never legally taken back from them. So they call that treaty land, which technically they don't have the property right to under U.S. law, but they're claiming that right was given to them, and it's never actually been taken away in a legal manner. So even though it's not the reservation, uh, it is treaty land. They're also, of course, claiming that that land contains many sacred sites. And so there's that claim, this history beginning in the 1800s, then you have a number of years ago, the Army Corps of Engineers decided to dam the Missouri River. And I don't know, several hundred thousand acres of Standing Rock land was, even though they were compensated for it, they didn't agree to it. I don't think they've ever cashed the check. But anyway, some of their most fertile land on the western side of the Missouri River was taken away to create a reservoir. So this was also part of the background here. So then you put that all on the fact that also they decided the pipeline was too dangerous for the water uh, supply for Bismarck, which is mostly white, but apparently it's not too dangerous to cross the Missouri River and the lake right where they get their water supply from. I think all those things combined with this history was why they finally said that we've had enough and why they were joined by the other nations of the Sioux tribe and so many other indigenous people is this was just an extension of a long history. And uh, I think the threat to the water supply, as well as a disregard of their sovereignty and their sacred sites, all played on that. Well, gentlemen, we've just about reached the end of our program. It's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and get your contact information if our listeners would like to reach out to you after the program. So, Monty, let's start with you. Sure. I would just kind of follow on that last question, really to sum up. I think while there's certainly been more attention paid to the issues in North Dakota with Dakota Access Pipeline, in some ways this issue is no different than the fights and the interests and concerns and the struggle that Indian tribes have been undertaking for hundreds of years, really since first contact. I think part of the difference about this particular fight is it has largely through the position that tribes are in now, a position of political influence, of sophisticated legal representation, and really media influence, they've been able to draw others to the righteousness of their positions. So I think while more people are paying attention to this one particular issue, it's not alone in terms of its basis, its historical context, and the issues that are at stake, tribes are are fighting for these issues across the country. So hopefully going forward, the big picture solution, regardless of how a new administration or a new Congress addresses the Dakota Access Pipeline in particular, the question remains, what comes out of this situation in a larger context, and hopefully it will engender more understanding and more desire to understand the bigger picture context, the historical context, the rights of tribes, tribal sovereignty, the federal tribal relationship, so that more folks can better understand those issues going forward. And in that regard, I appreciate the opportunity to to talk about this issue with your folks and your audience, because I think the more that people understand 
the context, the better they'll appreciate those issues. And then the next time these issues come up, folks will be better informed. If folks want to contact me, I'm happy to give my contact information. You can find me on the webpage for the Alexander Blewett, the third school of law here at the University of Montana in Missoula. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And Jeffrey, your final thoughts and your contact information, please. Yeah. Well, I also think there's definitely a national context to this. The native lands have frequently been sacrifice zones where their energy has been taken. I live in New Mexico, where there are these huge coal-powered power plants on Navajo land. Uh, The people don't even have electricity, but they live in the fumes of these huge coal plants. So this was true having to deal with the uranium on native lands. And everywhere there's fracking going on. And so there's a real fight over to what extent can they protect their lands and their sovereignty and to what extent are they going to be exploited for their natural resources. And I think the new administration already has set up an Indian council who wants to, I guess from their standpoint, develop these resources, but also frack and mine for coal and uranium and continue sort of the sacrifice zones that native reservations and native lands have been. So I think this pipeline is sort of the question of what tribal sovereignty do we have? How much control do we have over our land? I'm part of the Water Protectors Legal Collective. You can go to our Facebook page, Water Protector Legal Collective, or I'm jeffreyhaas42 at gmail.com. Well, thank you very much to both of you for taking the time to be with us. This is a really interesting discussion. We've been talking with Monty Mills, co-director of the Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic at the Alexander Blewett III School of Law at the University of Montana, and attorney Jeffrey Haas, founder of the People's Law Office in Chicago and a member of the legal team, the Water Protector Legal Collective. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Well, that brings us to the end of our show, Bob. This is Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.